Today's episode is brought to you by the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. To learn more, visit usbank.com slash altitude go. Today's episode is brought to you by Wise, the account that helps you manage your money around the world, which is huge for travelers. I've been a customer and a fan for 10 years. The Wise account helps you send, spend, and receive in different currencies fast, and they do it all without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. This service has been so critical for me in my life as a traveler, as a nomad, as somebody living abroad, and you can join 16 million customers and learn how the Wise account can help you out on the road at wise.com slash travel. That's wise, W-I-S-E dot com slash travel, or download the app. This episode of Zero to Travel is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. There is no doubt that the internet has changed the way we work forever. As the remote work trend explodes, more and more people will have the opportunity to travel and live that coveted work-from-anywhere freedom lifestyle. But at what cost? Today, we discuss the impact of the digital nomad movement on local communities, as well as the challenges and benefits of this new global workplace. Let's keep our impact positive. Welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend. You're listening to the Zero to Travel podcast, where we explore exciting travel-based work, lifestyle, and business opportunities, helping you to achieve your wildest travel dreams. Now your host, world wanderer and travel junkie, Jason Moore. Hey there, it's Jason with ZeroToTravel.com. Welcome to the show, my friend. Thank you very kindly for hanging out with me today, letting me bring a little travel into your ears. This is the show to help you travel the world on your terms to fill your life with as much travel as you desire, no matter what your situation or experience And you're joining many thousands of people from around the world as this global caravan, this listening community grows and grows. And I thank you so much for being a part of it. If you're new to the show, welcome. Please subscribe and hang out. And this is an important episode because as a traveler, you know you make an impact wherever you go. And we want to do our best to make a positive impact, as I said at the top of the show. And as this remote work and digital nomad lifestyle continues to grow, this isn't a trend. This is the new norm. And people that are listening to this either might think I'm crazy or they're shaking their heads. Yep, I get it. This is the way the world is going. But it is going this way as we are so easily connected and technology just keeps improving. The internet gets faster and faster. And pretty soon, this movement that seems like a fringe thing to buck the conventional lifestyle is actually going to become the mainstream thing to do. At least that is my belief, and I believe the world is going that way. And because of that, we need to have some conversations going on around the impact of this movement on the places that we go. As more and more people are going to travel, we need to have these conversations. And I have a guest today that is in one of the epicenters of this movement in many ways, and he brings a lot to the table in terms of his experience and who he is as a person and being a thought leader in this space. I'm really excited for you to join our chat today, and I'll get to that in just a second. First, just want to thank Tortuga Backpacks for supporting today's show. If you're on the hunt for a new day pack or a backpack that you can travel the world with, don't waste your time doing all the research. Just go to zerototravel.com slash Tortuga 
and you're going to find my favorite packs right there. And you get 10% off for being a listener to this show if you just type in the promo code TRAVEL when you check out. Just the word TRAVEL will get you 10% off any of the Tortuga backpacks or any of the gear that they have. I use the Tortuga Outbreaker and the Day Pack pretty religiously, but really love all of their stuff. And they have different sizes and types of packs for any of your needs, whether you're a long-term traveler or you just take shorter trips quite often and you want a more minimal pack, just check their stuff out. Trust me, you're going to love it. ZeroToTravel.com slash Tortuga. 10% off with that promo code TRAVEL, just the word TRAVEL when you check out. And if you do decide to pick anything up over there, you'll also be supporting this show. And I thank you very much for that. And thanks to Tortuga for not only supporting this show, but just making great gear and also having the types of conversations that I'm talking about that we're having today because they write about this stuff and they're very aware of these issues as well and very sensitive to them. And I love that because I love to work with companies and people that are really hyper aware of the impact they're making and trying to do their best to move through the world in a way that that is good and positive. So Let's get into this conversation right now and stick around on the other side because I have a little bit more to add to this as well as a shout out to one of you fine folks in the community and a quote to leave you with. So stick around and I will see you on the other side, my friend. My guest today co-founded and runs Hubud, which is one of the world's top co-working spaces. It's located in Ubud, Bali, and he is aiming to, quote, inspire a million people to change the way they live, work, and learn. You can check out the work he's doing there at hubud.org. That's H-U-B-U-D.org. He also co-founded the Coworking Alliance for Asia Pacific and their annual conference, which is a meeting place for co-working spaces from over 30 countries to connect and explore the future of remote work. Today, we're going to discuss the impact of the digital nomad and remote work movement on individuals and local communities, life abroad, and much more. I'm thrilled to have him here. Steve Monroe, welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend. Thank you. Glad to be here. Now, I thought I heard from your lips in another interview, but then I read somewhere else that you were from the USA, but I think you said you were from Canada. So I wasn't sure. So I just figured I would talk to the man himself here and find out where you came from. All right. Get the real deal. Um, I'm from Canada. I grew up in Toronto um, pretty much my whole life until I was uh, 19. I moved out west for two years, and then I've been abroad pretty much the, the last 19. What brought you out west when you were young? Uh anything to get out of my house okay. uh, or out of my city. <laughs> yeah. and, 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 you know, hoping my mom isn't listening to that and feeling responsible for that answer. I think I just wanted, uh, you know, I, I wanted some independence, wanted to see something new. And so um, the wild west of British Columbia and Canada was calling. So a place I'm dying to go that I still haven't been. And somehow definitely on a bucket list to go through the national parks in Canada and I think that's natural for most travelers or most people, or I guess a lot of people that I know trying to bust out of the hometown and get something different. But then I think after I've been gone for a while, the hometown, you start to see the things that actually made it nice when you were there. They were things that you're like, oh, this place sucks. Do you have the similar experience? Like, What's your relationship with Toronto now? Uh, I have a good relationship with Toronto, but I'm, the truth is I've never really lived there as as an adult, you know, a fully functioning adult living the adult life, right? Like I left right after high school. It wasn't that there was anything wrong or that I didn't like Toronto. It was just more, as you say, kind of looking for some adventure, looking for something new. I hadn't traveled much um, until that point. So I think there was something very alluring about going away for university 
you know, there are people there that make it feel like home, but the city itself always feels a little unfamiliar to me. Yeah, it's weird, especially when you leave for so long and come back because you have this, I don't know, this idea of what it was from your youth and, and no place is ever the same when you come back. I'm sure even when you go back to Bali, you're in London right now, it might feel a little different if you're gone for long enough. And that's, I mean, that's one of the beauties about travel. I guess you can keep going back to the same places and they're always different. Do you remember a specific moment when you fell in love with travel? Did you ever fall in love with travel in a, in a way like that? And I don't want to romanticize it or anything, but some people can point to one particular moment, which I find interesting. And other people, it's just sort of a collection of you know trips that their parents took them on or whatever. What, what was that for you? I think the moment where I really thought, okay, this, this is what life is going to look like, uh, was in a really dingy motel room in Chinatown in Kuala Lumpur. I had, uh, you know, basically not, not really traveled outside of, of North America other than one trip when I was 10 to Scotland to visit family. And when I was uh, two years into university, I decided to leave university um, because I was more or less taking up space and collecting huge student loans uh, along the way and not really, not really being, not really wanting to be there. You know, I volunteered for this, this uh, Canada world youth experience. It was eight, eight months living in a very small Island in Indonesia. And, um, and so I did that and that was a totally life altering experience for sure. There's, there's many life altering experiences during that time. But the following year I went back with my, uh, my girlfriend at the time, wife now, um, kind of 19 years later. And, um, we were sitting in this dingy room in Chinatown in Kuala Lumpur and she had never been to Southeast Asia. So I was now the resident expert in that room. Um, and I took her out and we bought rambutans, these, these little kind of lychee like fruits, um, really, really odd fruits that were very foreign to Canadians. And we sat in this dingy room eating a bag of rambutans. And I was like, this, this is what my life's going to look like. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. And that was with a window that like looked out into the hall, yeah. uh, under the air conditioner. It was, it was a fairly dire place, but, but it didn't matter. We had everything we wanted in that room. How did you meet your wife then? Was it part of that program or did you guys meet in university? Yeah, we met in university. She was two years ahead of me. Um, and I, yeah, Sarah fell in love, then uh, kind of followed her around for the next couple of years. Not a, not a, not a very uh, exciting meeting story. It was, it was, you know, in the cafeteria at the university kind of thing. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So you worked for the UN for a long time, and you have some experience with IGOs and maybe NGOs. I get a little confused by which is what. I think the UN's an IGO. Was that part of the plan at a certain point after you went to Kuala Lumpur and did this program, did you decide, hey, I want to build a career that that's something international, it's something that will take me abroad and allow me to make an impact? Or what was your motivation with your career choices, I guess, early on? Uh, well, for me, it was two. I mean, A, I can remember a very particular moment when I made a decision uh, for myself. So the when I did this program, and so, I mean, this was living in a, in a very rural very remote um, part of Eastern Indonesia, where most Indonesians I've met still to this day don't really know where it is. You know, they know it's kind of like way out there. And so it was, you know, small island, no running water, no electricity, um, very, very removed from the rest of the country. So it was very poor. Um, a lot of people were dying of malaria. There was uh, a drought region. It was, it was, you know, let's say the, the program never went back to that area. Let's put it that way. They, they kind of pushed it a little bit too far for Canadian safety standards. So when I left there uh, after eight months, we had a three-day three day stopover in Bali. We had eight Canadians who were scattered in different villages. We had kind of a debrief slash let's, you know, 
get proper haircuts, get tattoos, and, and drink and eat for three days after living on this island. And then a, an overnight stopover in Kuala Lumpur in transit and um, back to KL, funnily enough. And I remember sitting in the Pan Pacific Hotel, which was the airport hotel that we were booked in as part of our flight. And I remember sitting at this kind of like balcony, mezzanine overlooking the, the lobby. And it's this incredible grand lobby, um, you know, this huge, very, very fancy place. And I just remember sitting there crying. And uh, I'm thinking, like, how can this place and that exist in the same world? Never mind. Such a close. Um, it, it just seems so kind of outrageously inexplicable to me at that moment. So I'd say that for me was that moment where, where it was. But but backing up, basically, it was it was my my girlfriend at the time, Ben wife. She was studying international relations. She she really kind of got me thinking broader than than kind of where we were going for the next uh the next round of drinks on thursday at student night you know she definitely um was an avid traveler much much before i was um so it kind of got me thinking in that way which is why i ended up going to the indonesia thing rather than just kind of working in canada for that time out of university and and which then led me to my own kind of conviction of the path if you will yeah and can you talk about your experience at the un just give everybody a sense of what you did because we're going to get into the remote work stuff in a little while, but it's nice to kind of know your background because I do think you're a unique person to discuss some of the issues that might come up or that people consider as part of this movement that I don't think are discussed often enough. And we're getting into that in a little bit, but you have so much experience working on the ground with local communities and making an impact locally. I would just love to hear a little bit of an overview on your experience with the UN and what you did. I, I guess my, my UN experience is into, into two, um, eras, I guess. It's the full-time staff member and then the consultant. So the full-time staff part was about seven years, and that was uh, in three countries. It was Uzbekistan, Sri Lanka, Cambodia. Uh, I was a communications director regionally for the UN Office on Drugs and Crime in, in Central Asia, which I was, I'm sure, woefully uh, ill-trained to do. Um, it seemed to be the story of my life with all the things I've ended up doing. Then we went to Sri Lanka, and I went to do a kind of post-conflict um, work on a post-conflict uh, project that they were doing. Um, it was after the, the ceasefire between the government and the Tamil Tigers in 2004. And then about three months after we arrived, the tsunami hit, the big kind of Indian Ocean tsunami that killed 260,000 people or something. So that that very quickly became what I, what I was doing. So I was kind of living in a car in the south of Sri Lanka, opening offices um, for the UN relief efforts. Definitely another one of those things where I just kind of found myself in a, in a situation. That was very, very eye-opening for, for a lot of reasons. It was very um, uh, rewarding work, very tiring work, um, in, in kind of emotionally as well as physically. So I, I got a real appreciation for people that work in the humanitarian sector, so really kind of the people that are in and out of conflict and, and disaster zones. Perpetually, it's a really taxing, grinding, costly life in a lot of ways. So I did that for a few years, and then I moved to Cambodia, where I was the program manager for landmine clearance in the country, so for the UN. So I managed a $25 million landmine project, landmine clearance project, sorry. Uh, and that was an amazing job in terms of UN work, development work, which is often a bit kind of fuzzy and nebulous in terms of are we making an impact, you know, this thing that we did, did it, did it do anything? Um, with landmines, at least there's a there's a, just a crystal clear benchmark, you know, um, there's casualty rate that's dropping, there's a an amount of land that then gets released back to farmers or, or children, schools and stuff that now they can use that space. And so from that point of view, it was very, very nice, very rewarding. Um, I really liked that job. For a couple of reasons, we, we decided we made the decision to, to leave that, um, to leave that career. And, and as I said, I like that job, but I 
got to a point where I was offered a job um, and it was a great job and it was a very career, smart career move to take the job. Um, and so I got to the point where, where I more or less agreed to take it um, because in my mind, I wanted to be country director by the age of 38. I don't know why and don't know why that age. I was 32 at the time. So this was the right stepping stone type of career move to take. Um, and somewhere along in that period, because obviously the UN doesn't move very quickly with a lot of things, including recruitment. So during the kind of months that, that this was going on, um, this thought crept into my mind that every country director I knew, and I, I knew a few, I don't want to say had terrible lives, but when I really kind of was like, you know, why am I doing this? Why am I, why am I after this target? What's the reasoning behind it? And, and the truth was most of them had lives that I wasn't actually sure that I wanted, right? In terms of um, most of them were divorced or separated. Most of them they just didn't actually didn't appeal. Yeah. It's an easy way to see if you're going in the right direction, right? If you look above you and you're like, I don't want to be that person (laughs) in five years or whatever. Exactly. I mean, it really, I mean, I I always say it's the thought that that ruined my career. Um, because once that crept in, it, it was, it was kind of hard to unthink it. So that happened. And then almost immediately we had a kind of health scare with my son. He got rheumatic fever, um, from, really bad strep infection. It went to his heart. We had to medevac and we'd have been having a lot of health issues and, you know, in that country and in Cambodia in particular. So it was really like a, a bunch of things all at once that first made us think, okay, we've got to get out of Cambodia. And then thought, actually, maybe we have to get out of this whole thing. Um, which then led us to a, but if we do that, then where do we go? And, and this maybe is kind of back to something you, you referenced. Um, you know, we've been living overseas for now about 10 years because there was some schooling and, and overseas study and stuff in there as well. And, uh, you know, we, we had to make this decision if we were going to go back to Canada or or kind of carry on and um, without having like a clear reason to go to a place like a job. And in the end, we we looked at Vancouver and we looked at Ubud and Bali and we didn't go to Vancouver. Yeah, <laughs> that's how that turned out. And from there, for the next three years, I actually consulted for the UN. Um, so then I, I kind of did what a lot of people do. And I see tons of people doing kind of through the Hoopit experience the last half decade, which is, um, okay, I, I know I don't want to do this thing. And I quit. And then think, oh, my God, what have I done? Um, you know, I don't don't have a plan B. And, you know, so um, so I spent the next three years consulting mainly in what they would call the crisis prevention field. So kind of post disaster stuff, conflict stuff, a lot of work in Sudan and Afghanistan and Pakistan and New York and other wars things like that. So. And where did you have your kids along the way? How did that work with the family planning or was there not really planning? It was just kind of like, all right, we're going to have a family. We're here. This is what we're doing. A bit, a bit of both. One was born in Glasgow and one was born on the Isle of Wight in southern England. And the reason for that was the first one we were we were in um, Belgium living in Brussels. I was finishing my master's degree and my master's degree was due on July 15th, 2004. I remember that because my first son was born or it was uh, due on July 15th, 2004. No, not was, too much going on at once, right? <laughs> I, I know. It was the very first paper, I think, in the history of Steve Monroe that was handed in early. That was finished early. Was like, <laughs> the first and only? Or? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. It was the last one I ever wrote. And I was like, I just can't push this under the wire, right? So we, we finished that off and then had two weeks left. And my wife had not wanted to go back to Canada um, to have the baby because it would have meant leaving like kind of two and a half months. You know, I would have had to stay to finish my, my schooling and she would have gone back two and a half months earlier. So we just said, OK, well, we'll have it in Belgium. And then somewhere along the way, clued in that I'm a dual citizen, Canadian and British, um, but second generation British. 
So the deal was if I couldn't pass that citizenship to my children unless they were born in the United Kingdom. And then in case they, they, there was no, they just get it. So we hopped in a boat two weeks before the, the baby was due. It was an overnight slow boat. Um, so there was a lot of kind of saying, don't come early and had the first one in Glasgow. And then when you do it for one, you kind of have to do it for the next. So we, we left Sri Lanka um, six weeks before the baby was due and rented a little farmhouse on a, in a lavender field. And it was very, very picturesque and, and waited and had a baby there. Yeah, that's a good idea. I mean, setting them up with those keys to the world, I guess, which we're fortunate to have with these passports that not everybody gets to have. And I know that, you know, I have a U.S. passport, but my daughter's going to have a Norwegian passport and a U.S. passport. That's pretty lucky. The Cambodian experience, the, the experience in Cambodia, uh, you know, I know you guys had several reasons why you decided to move on, but I can imagine just trying to put myself in your shoes in a job like that and how rewarding it must have been, but also stressful in many ways, right? Because how do you turn it off when you know, hey, if we just do a little more today, maybe we, we'll get one more and, and maybe this person won't get hurt. Or, I mean, was how did you handle all that? And, and maybe you can explain a little bit so I can get a sense of what you did in your day-to-day because I'm really curious about your day-to-day life in a, in a position like that. Well, I would say to the first question, you know, there is a there is an expression. I don't know that it's true, but I, I know somehow that it's not totally untrue, which is the UN is is the place where idealism goes to die. Which is, which is a little grim, where the truth in it is. I guess you get to a, a point where you, you are never really satisfied. It, it leaves you kind of feeling a bit jaded, you know, I think is, is really what it comes down to. I work with very mm, smart, talented people at the UN, some very passionate people. For some reason, I always remember Afghanistan and my time there, and I didn't spend much time there. I spent kind of uh, three, four weeks at a time, a few times um, for different things. And it's kind of interesting. It's a little bit scary. I think what happens to people after a period of time, like what becomes normal and what you, you can kind of, how you have to switch it off. A friend of mine that I I did a master's program with, I did a master's in human rights and democratization. And it was a lot of like, um, a lot of human rights lawyers types. It was a quite legal profession. And, but he talked about being in Congo for, for a couple of years and, um, in the field for a long time, but it was this position in particular, um, his most, his last field position where he was the, he was kind of doing human rights monitoring. So, so through these field based things, when there was different reports of human rights abuses or people could come and make, make cases directly or, or file reports directly to them, etc. He'd been there for a few years and it was, it was pretty like pretty grim, some of the stuff that was happening. And, uh, and he said, I just remember I was sitting there and this woman was telling me a story about being raped by multiple people and it, it and it actually kind of got worse from there to be honest and um and he said I'm, I'm taking these notes i'm asking these questions and i'm thinking about what i'm going to make for dinner and he, and then and that's when he's like I, I have to get out of here and interestingly when we left when we left and moved to bali the first the first business we we kind of took a run at was doing a a retreat kind of a retreat program for burnt out aid workers um we'd seen you know so much of it but Okay, so yeah, the daily life of managing a project like that in Cambodia for a UN type project, it's very field based, very active, very tactical. For a landmine clearance program, it's very office based. You know, it depends on what perspective you look at. So um, basically, we worked on the resource allocation side, so deciding uh, and prioritization. You know, when you have a, a big problem like they do in Cambodia, and even if you have a lot of money, it's a question of, you know, what's getting cleared first and why. Um, so there was a fair amount of work that I would be responsible for on that side in terms of 
working with local government and community groups to identify, working with other landmine clearance agencies and actors to kind of figure out where we'd be focused uh, on and, and why. Um, there's an oversight component because we worked with the National Clearance Authority. It was a semi-governmental body um, that we had about 800 deminers on the project. So there was kind of an oversight part of that. So basically, I was, I was there in a project management capacity rather than any kind of technical advisory role. Because, you know, in Cambodia, they actually, they're kind of exporting that. And then a fair number of field visits. So that was, uh, that was a, I suppose, the, the kind of really interesting part of the job was getting out to the, in the countryside. Um, mainly, we worked along the thai Cambodian border and uh, doing kind of spot visits and, and checking up with the different um, contractors and, and doing that. You mentioned that expression where idealism comes to die, or I'm not quite sure how it was worded. Did you find that that was something that you felt personally within yourself? How did these experiences impact your core values? And, and was that was that an experience you had even temporarily? Or you know, what are your thoughts around that? For myself, in terms of my, my own motivation, I don't know if it affected my core values. I think my core values are what kind of inspired me to leave when I found that I guess the the reward is, is maybe the wrong word, but that kind of rewarding feeling of of feeling like you're doing, you know, the work you thought you were there to do. It's a little bit like you know, people that join the UN typically are there because they want to change the world. I would say that's that's high on the list of of the majority of people that join the UN. Um, and then at some point, whether you want to call it reality, whether you want to call it um, just things set in where you're like, okay, well. You know, maybe I'm not going to change the entire world, but I can have this impact here, right? And and over time, what I find is the window of expectation in terms of of what you're going to be capable of doing or influencing gets smaller and smaller and smaller over time. And so, you know, organizationally, that's really problematic, right? Because then you start basically being satisfied with less. And I think that's kind of I think that gets kind of dangerous and troubling because I, I do think it. It's not like, um, you know, we, we thought we were going to build, you know, a brick wall that, that was uh, three meters tall and instead we only did 2.8 meters, um, you know, where you didn't quite meet your expectations. But the personal, I mean, I think is where you're going with this, that, that personal connection um, or commitment to the outcome is not nearly as high as when you say, okay, well, I'm here, I'm in this field to deliver kind of emergency uh, supplies to the refugee camp or to train teachers that can go into rural villages. And when you, when you kind of continuously fall short of what you think you should be able to do, I think that really can be quite corrosive, corrosive to the soul, I guess. You know, it's a little bit like, now that I think about it, it was a little bit like a, a moment I had in high school where I was taking a, I think it was my final year, and I was taking a creative writing class, and we had to do this collection of poetry. And, and there was this, this thing around the theme of high school and, and the glory of high school and how high school is the best are the best days of your life and that, that kind of sentiment. And I remember thinking really clearly, um, if, if this is as good as it gets, kill me now. <laughs> right. And it, and it wasn't because I, I didn't have a particularly like awful or traumatic um, high school. I probably had a middle of the road kind of, uh, you know, I wasn't I didn't end up in a locker three times a week and I didn't, uh, you know, wasn't the quarterback of the football team. I just remember thinking, like, really, if it goes down for the next 50 years, like this is not I'm not cool with that. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah I'm, not, I'm not in. I'm not in. No. <laughs> um, and so that's that was kind of my moment with it, I think, was um, 
was not that, you know, everything was so terrible and I was really so unhappy all the time or whatever, but, but my, my kind of discontent and my disenchantment was growing. And so my, my realization that, you know, pushing forward on this path to, to be kind of senior management and, and go into these roles was actually pushing me further and further away from my, my connection to purpose, I would say. And that if it was going to get worse, you know, and I was only 32 um, and it was going to, you know, decline for the next 25 years. Um, that just wasn't something I felt like I could live with, you know? Yeah. So how did you find your way back to connecting with your purpose? Was it through your current project now? What was that journey like? Well, it was a, it was a slow one. <laughs> As um, it is for yeah, it, most people, I would say. <laughs> well, I hope, I hope so. Yeah. I hope so. I hope there's some struggle out there. I often say it took me two years to recover from, from the UN. You know, when I got to Bali with, in theory, you know, the entire world uh, opened to me. I could do anything I could, that I could kind of put my mind to, I guess. But my, my mind, my capacity for imagination, imagining a different version of me, I think was so limited by, I think organizations like the UN or really big bureaucratic companies or, you know, other institutions, you know, there is this process of institutionalization, right? And, and I just feel like that narrows your field of, of the possible year by year. So when I got out, I, I really couldn't imagine myself doing anything else, you know? Um, I mean, I was happy not to be doing it, but then I, I was like, I just don't, I didn't have any confidence in my ability to do anything else. And even then I couldn't even really imagine what that would be. So the two year process of, and I consulted during this time, um, it was just a slow unraveling of the decade in that, in that field and the slow opening to, to other things being possible. Right. And, and I mean, the truth is I'm very entrepreneurial and, you know, when that, you know, started to open up all of a sudden I, I found myself in, involved in projects and I found myself starting a raw food vegan restaurant. I found myself, you know, kind of putting my toe in the water and then kind of pushing it further and further from there. So with my current project, when, when it got started and, you know, I mean, the, the, uh, I suppose part of the inspiration for it was when we were in Bali, we just seemed to meet person after person after person that essentially shared our story that they had been having a successful life in, in the sense that it was that what, whatever it was they had planned and started was going well, but then gotten to a certain point where they realized uh, that they weren't fulfilled or happy in doing what they were doing. And they were in Bali for a period of time to kind of reconnect with their purpose and to see what else might be possible. They were at this like transitional point in their life, um, which is actually a really fascinating time to meet somebody you know, they're, they're like in between versions of themselves. They're really quite incredible. And, and something I feel quite like lucky and, and honored to have, to be so deeply in that for the last now six, seven, eight years. Uh, you know, cause I, I very much that inspired Hubert and very much that's, that's essentially, uh, you know, I would say many of the members at Hubert um, are going through some sort of journey like this where they're, they're reinventing what's possible. I think the way you said it in between versions of themselves is so well said because as you mentioned, just through your story, and I think so many people can relate to that, trying to reinvent yourself after you've been doing something for so long and in a way your identity can become tied with your profession, even though it shouldn't be, because that's not who you are. You're not what you do, right? You're 
you're something underneath that. But that process of then reflecting back on what you've done, but then also trying to open up and look forward that you described is so relatable uh, because that's the process I think everybody goes through. And it's just, it's hard to describe that because it's, it's messy, but at the same time, it's beautiful, right? Because you, you get to kind of open up and, and start exploring. And when you started tapping into that entrepreneurial side of you and you went into the direction of the co-working space, were you taking some of those skills that you learned over the last 10 plus years and figuring out, okay, hey, maybe the things that I, I did can actually apply to the things I'm going to do in the future. Because I think there can be this sort of thing when you're in that reinvention process where you're like, okay, well, like if I do something totally different, how is that? Like I'm going to have to start over and learn everything new, but it's not really that way, is it? Yeah, it is. You think so? Because <laughs> I, I think a lot of I, skills that you learn translate so well. If you're talking about managing people and you were in charge, I mean, why is that different for you? There's a book called From Good to Great, this very famous management book about you know the, the greatest companies in, in history and, and what makes them great. Um, so it's quite a seminal work. And I just remember this kind of chart, you know, one of these like scatter graph things where you have four quadrants. And, and basically, the only thing I remember, I don't remember even what the title of it was, but in one corner left was a technocratic, bureaucratic it summed up the UN perfectly in terms of, of what it was. And then on the far side was an entrepreneur okay. working in. Um, so I went from. <laughs> they were in different universes, most, basically. <laughs> totally different universes. And it's not just being an entrepreneur, but it's being a, a foreign entrepreneur in a country that that doesn't make as much sense to you because it's not your own, but also it's, a, it's just a very, um, you know, ambiguous business climate, right? Where Where nothing is certain, right? I mean, you just, I live in the gray, right? I live totally in the gray. Um, and I'd come from really the polar opposite of, of environments, right? So that's where I, I had to do a lot more unlearning than morphing. You know what I mean? I really, and, and so it was about, um, about how would we go about this? Well, let's sit down and start writing this 10 page report analysis. And let's think about things forever. And let's get 57 different people's input and blah, 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 blah. And it, um, it, it was really the like, opposite of the whole kind of lean startup. Let's, let's get something going. Let's see what's happening. Let's change. Let's pivot. Let's be brave. Let's be fearless. It, it took a while. You know, then other things that I've gotten involved with since, I would say very much, I've, I've leaned on the experience from, from, you know, that early kind of entrepreneurial experience into other projects, whether it's, and whether it's like the way I would give a talk or the way I would approach personally. Yeah. I mean, it, yes, it can carry, but in my case, it was it was really a case of like it really did start feel like starting from scratch. When did you launch the co working space? March third, two thousand and thirteen. I want to get into some terminology questions because people could refer to Ubud or Chiang Mai or these places as digital nomad hotspots or whatever. I'm not sure what you think of all this terminology. I'm going to ask you about that, but in regards to the remote work movement you guys were pretty much at the forefront of this, right? I mean, how many co-working spaces like this were there around the world at this time? I hesitate to say none. I'm sure there were. You know, I think of like Surf Office, which is based, I feel like, in the Canary Islands at the time. I know Box Jelly or something opened in Hawaii. Um, although even that might have been a bit different. I think Surf Office might have been closer. So not a lot. We, we didn't really have a model to, to base ourselves off, let's put it that way. We were, we were very emphatically told, basically, don't. 
do what you're doing, you know, because nobody wants to come to Bali to work. Who was saying, don't do this? Pretty much everybody we talked to. Um, yeah, some business advisors, some friends and family, members of the community that, you know, it's hard for me to imagine now because I'm, I've been so enmeshed in the whole co-working universe for so long that, um, but I mean, you know, five, six years ago when we first, six years ago when we started, six and a half years ago when we started it, because um, we, we started the process and, and stuff much before we opened it, nobody knew what a co-working space was here, you know, in Bali. Even outside, I mean, it was it's grown tremendously in the last five or six years. So it was really trying to explain a foreign concept to people and, and you know, answering all the really basic questions people would have about co-working spaces. Why would I pay to use a space when I can work from home? I can work from a cafe for free. There's Wi-Fi, yada, yada, all these, these basic things. But yeah, I mean, this idea of, I mean, the, the very basic question that, that we came up with the most or the, the complaint or the criticism was, you know, who would come to, to Bali to work? And my question was, was, well, who wouldn't if they could? I mean, why on earth would you want to be in some concrete box that you spend, you know, 45 minutes each direction to go to that you don't typically like, filled with people you're kind of sketchy on um, in the middle of winter? Like, that sounds awful. You know, why wouldn't you want to work in Bali when increasingly day by day by day, it's becoming the, the number of people that can work remotely is growing. I mean, just literally day by day. So, and that, that's a trend that's not going to, it's absolutely not going to reverse. I mean, there might, there may be kind of to and fro about, about, you know, the, the value of in-person versus, versus, you know, what can be done remotely, but in terms of some kind of a, a technological enablement, it, it gets better by easier by the day. Right. Yeah. So. Did you have to take a big risk to start this monetarily? Was this a, did you guys have investors or what was it like personally for you? We didn't have any investors. So it was all money we personally put in. We were quite lucky with, with a couple of things. One was um, finding a landlord that unlike the norm in Indonesia, the contract law around leases is, is generally pretty tough. So if you wanted to kind of have a place and have a, a reasonable time window on it where there was price predictability, you had to pay for that upfront. So you'd say, I'm going to rent this building for you for the next 10 years. And I'm going to pay for that upfront. Or you tell, I'll pay for two years, but then I'm going to put all these leasehold improvements to it and renovate it and make it look awesome and put in blah, blah, blah. And then two years from now, you're, there's no limits to rent hikes and things like that. And that would have been a potentially a huge amount, but we found a beautiful, beautiful space, which is the space we're still in now, this this kind of bamboo cathedral. And um, so we were very lucky with, with that side of things. Um, the other thing we did was we, cup of tea by cup of tea, we sold 25 founding memberships for kind of either 500 or $1,000 each. So that, you know, gave us another kind of 20 grand that, that went towards building the cafe out back and, and things like that. And then we we just worked it. So, you know, we didn't have staff costs at the beginning. We just, we worked in ourselves. Did it start working out for you pretty much right away? I mean, you had the, you had the initial members, but did you find, hey, people are coming here to work? I mean, how quickly did, did the movement catch up to what you guys were doing? Because it seems like, like I said, when you're at the forefront of something, sometimes the rest of it has to catch up to you, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it's true. I, yes, that's right. So the... It felt a little bit like we were we were uh, an overnight success that was 12 months in the making. We opened March 3rd. Um, the previous May, we did a two-week pop-up, took over a cafe, kitted it out as well we could, and had this two-week thing where we, we essentially got people in. So we had about 300 people show up for that. 
over the period, we held nine events. We, we just started getting people involved and, and kind of connected to the idea and excited about it and, and, and whatnot. Um, we held events then every month between then and when we actually opened. So by the time we opened, we had really established a, a community and built a community around, around this idea. Even if they weren't fully sure what, what it was, you know, um, they were excited about it nonetheless. It meant that when we opened, we opened fairly strong. We had all these founding members. So, you know, we, we kind of had 50 plus paying members in our first month, which was fantastic. And we, and then it grew very quickly from there. I mean, you know, for myself, the, the interesting thing was, I, you know, I'd never heard of a digital nomad. I had no idea such thing existed. You know, it really changed very quickly what Hubert became. You know, I mean, we really thought it was, we were really kind of focused on, on the different types of people and groups and nationalities and whatnot that were in Bali already, but we're not expecting kind of how hypermobile this, this new group was. When you start a business, you can never, you have this idea, but you never know where it's going to go. And I think something that stands out about what you guys have done from the very beginning, and I noticed even on your LinkedIn profile the first thing you say is community builder. And and if you go under our story on your, your website, hubu.org, it's the value of community. And it's about fostering community. How important is community to not just your business, but to your personal lifestyle, living abroad and being a part of this whole remote work digital nomad scene? Mm, it's, a great, it's a great question and, and a whole kind of series in and of itself. So... It's everything. So from a business point of view, um, you know, I mean, this is what we talk about at the, at the conference and through all the different things we do around, you know, helping other people establish spaces and whatnot is, um, you know, we, we follow the advice we got um, from somebody who started before us in, in Australia who said, you start with the community first, which I found really difficult to understand because I said, well, how do you build a community around something that doesn't yet exist, right? So we're, we're building it around a co-working space, but there's no space. And anyways, long story short, through the pop-up, through the events, through the thousand cups of tea we had, et cetera, before we ever opened, that's what we were doing. I just didn't realize it. Um, so <laughs> You were doing it you know, naturally. The, the whole, yeah, exactly. Without, without, without realizing that we were being, you know, savvy business people by doing it, right? It was just kind of what we, I think, all did quite naturally. If you spend time at Hubwood, it's it's unquestionably our most distinctive feature and our most valuable asset, um, and our most valuable, I guess, feature or or element in the offer. When I talk to people about choosing co-working spaces, my advice is always, you know, don't get too um, caught up in the features of it. I mean, you need whatever you need in order to do your work. So if you require a private office or you require whatever, um, you know, make sure that that's there at a minimum. But ultimately, what you're doing with a co-working space is shopping for a community, right? Uh, at least that's my take on it, right? And that's my, that's my idea around the value behind it, is that network you're going to create, that feeling of connectedness and, and belonging that you can get from kind of being in, in the right group, um, the right supportive environment. So, so from a business point of view, it's, it's absolutely massive. I know for myself personally, um, you know, that connection, uh, you know, I think I told my team year, a year in that, cause that's when it, it really hit home for me. I said, you know, what we're, what we are selling, if you will, what we're offering here is a chance for people to make meaningful human connection. And that's, you know, what's lacking in the world right now. Um, you know, the UK, uh, where I am right now, has just created a ministry of loneliness. 
it's a ministry. You know, it's not a it's not a committee. It's not a group. It's like it's, there's a minister involved, um, which is just remarkable and, and kind of shows you where they're putting this on the on the level of importance. Um, so I think there's there's something you know really really fast moving, very very challenging that's happening actually globally in our in our in our the way we socialize and the way we connect to people. So so I really do think it's important. Um this idea of community building, I mean it's it's not just about co-working spaces. It, you know, people gather around um places, but people also gather around kind of ideas and vision. People gather around brands. I mean brands are even getting much more savvy with that, right? It's not about um you know impression marketing. It's 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 about creating a sense of, of community around actual real relationships, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. The good old fashioned exactly. actual human relationships. <laughs> exactly. Don't underestimate them. They're really important. Yeah, um, they are. Yeah. Well, particularly to the, to the nomad scene, I think, because, you know, with the rise of solopreneurship and solo travel. And I mean, I remember traveling around for so many years and i you know it was it was a miracle a small miracle if i met if i wasn't staying at a hostel or something but i wasn't just in some random place and i met somebody that was also traveling for months it was like wow you know somebody else is doing this <laughs> right and no, well that's no it's it's really important well you mentioned the supportive environment and it's also interesting i mean this is this could go down a whole other rabbit hole but the, the how the physical environment also affects everything involved with with the supportive environment you're creating because it's not just a co-working space it's a co-working space in a specific location in a specific country and of course you can't separate all of those things because it, it's all intertwined and when we talk about community we're talking about several communities here i mean we've been talking about the remote work community and the digital nomad community that you guys are bringing together at the co-working space but you also have the local community where this nomad community or whatever you want to call it is is coming into and that community is affected uh, as well by the presence of this other community and again that's all part of it so I, I think the impact of the digital nomad movement on the local culture and the economy is an important topic that just isn't covered that much and i'm really excited to talk to you because i, I know you have certain programs and you come from this background where you you have worked for many years to impact local communities and be sensitive to that. So you're really in a unique position to discuss this. Can you talk about the remote work movement and the digital nomad movement? And I'll just give you my short diatribe here. I mean, I think at its best, it's about you know freedom and this idea that we can be world citizens and contribute to the local community and the world in a positive way. But at its worst, it's been called you know neocolonialism and form of exploitation and poor use of privilege and all these other things. I want to hear your thoughts on this. Mm. Um, you, you nailed it. So this is something uh, we, we just did this kind of video for, for somebody who are kind of looking into the documentary side of this. And this is exactly what, what we were talking about. My wife and I just recently, um, it is, it is, yes, exactly. So that's it at its best. That's it at its worst. Um, so the question is, you know, how do we, how do we facilitate the, the, the former and mitigate the latter? Um, so, and, and yeah, for me, I mean, so we have something called the co-giving program. Um, I, I gave a talk on this at the DNX conference a couple of years ago. I don't know if you know DNX, they're a big, very big kind of digital nomad conference and group. Um, and I, and I went, I gave it there intentionally because, um, uh, you know, I, again, at its worst, this kind of like, um, I, I felt like that was an important place to, 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 
talk about that stuff, you know, in terms of, of how how people, especially kind of early on in their journey, because um, for some people, it, they are kind of early on in their their journey of, of moving internationally and moving around internationally. And so how do they do that kind of more mindfully with some of these things in, in their head? Um, so co-giving is, is a term we we coined for this because um, we were kind of, you know, we went on a co a co rampage, you know, co working, co living, co learning, co. <laughs> you went co crazy. Um, we we went co crazy. We went totally co out, and uh, and so we we had this thing about co giving, where basically, you know, this idea of, of CSR, not a corporate, but CSR, or the idea of giving back. And and for me, I, I really don't like that kind of term or sense, at least in our context, because you know, for me, it's not about giving back to Bali. It's about participating in Bali because that's where we are. So that's our place. So in this kind of fast moving nomadic world, we're, we're an anchor in a place, in a community um, within, with a group of people uh, kind of with us and around us, you know, how can we not just not have a negative impact? How can we encourage our community members not to have a negative impact, but how we, again, facilitate meaningful human connections between these people that are coming and the place they find themselves. You know, and, and for sure, my, my background influenced my thinking on it. And so that meant that, you know, I mean, some very obvious things are, you know, the kind of volunteer job board where this organizations want somebody to do this or, you know, we can pair you up to do that. It, it's pretty fraught with risks, to be honest, um, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, I, I would always say, like, what we don't want to do is, is encourage the pet and orphan industry. Um, I lived in Cambodia, and this was kind of a thing where they would take people through orphanages, and and at, at times maybe even created those orphanages. You know what I mean? As a as a destination for for volunteer tourism, and, and some really weird dynamics. So, how do we do that mindfully? How do we ensure that people can have a uh, kind of meaningful interaction with local communities, and and in most cases, how can they kind of help deliver some something of value? that makes everybody happy. Um, so we kind of, we kind of entered that picture and, and sat at the intersection between people that wanted to get involved, people that needed some support, um, and then seeing if we could deliver it in a way that made everybody happy. I am so glad that you're doing this. <laughs> you have no idea because I think this is the biggest challenge facing this whole movement personally, because going somewhere and working and getting Wi-Fi and all that's easy, right? It's, it's the integration with the local community and making that all work and, and doing it right in an ethical way and, and educating. And I love that you were getting in front of people, you know, that are early on in their journey and explaining this. And this is again, a huge reason why I wanted to have you on the podcast. And, you know, six and a half years ago, you can think back to what Ubud was and where, where it's at now and how you guys have impacted it. Do you think it's better off than before the remote work movement? I do. I definitely do. Um, you know, I mean, just at a surface level, it's, I would say, you know, when we look at, at what tourism looks like in Bali or has looked at and still does in, in most ways, you know, in terms of the visitors that, that we attract and, and help keep there for a while, it's obviously still a tiny percentage of the, of the tourism numbers, right? I would say the main difference between your kind of average tourist and, and people that are coming through Hubud is A, they end up spending spending a lot more time um so they're spending more money two they tend to interact with the place differently so instead of saying staying at this hotel that's owned by a jacartan kind of conglomerate group or um, eating at the top two restaurants on TripAdvisor, for
for their one and a half days on average that they're in Ubud. They are typically renting a, a, a villa, a room of sorts from local families. By far, that's the, the majority of, of uh, accommodation. And eating in local restaurants because you're not eating at that fancy restaurant when you're there long term. Um, you know, you're eating more sensibly. And they tend to be, I would say, uh, more interested in engaging or, or being uh, integrating is, is, I don't know if that's a word I feel comfortable using in this context, but they're, they're much more curious and they want to get involved and they want to participate more, I would say, in, in kind of day-to-day life, right? So not just the performative side of things. I'm interested in Balinese culture, so I'll go and see a Balinese dance. More, I'm going to hang out with the Ibu, the, the old, older lady in the compound because she's telling me stuff and I don't really know what she's saying, but she's hilarious and we just kind of laugh and, and I spend some time with the family. And nothing wrong with going to see a Balinese dance. I mean, go to Bali, they have awesome dances. Now, that being said, obviously that's not universal and, and you know, with the whole co-giving program, my my um, desire with it was not necessarily to guilt or shame anybody into anything other than obviously don't be a dick. Um, <laughs> beep. Um, you know, there's a general bumper sticker rule that, right. that I think applies to everything we do. But beyond that, the idea was to facilitate these kind of interactions with people that genuinely wanted it, not kind of like guilt or shame people into it, right? Um, because I don't think that that works or helps. And some people just want to come and they're, they're going to be in Bali for a month and they're going to spend a chunk of that time at Hubud and they're going to go do yoga and they're going to go do whatever else they're going to do. And and again, assuming they're following that golden rule, I have no problem with that. You know, maybe when they're somewhere else, they're really engaged and, and in Bali less so. So it, it has to be voluntary, um, you know, but we just kind of make it, make it easier a little bit and make it easier to have a, a richer experience, right? Rather than just one that's, that's quite surface. Well, I know you have the annual unconference, I think you call it, for the co-working spaces from around the world. And I don't know if it's a secret or not so secret agenda on <laughs> for you to help maybe influence some of these co-working spaces to take on some of the programs or maybe start some of the programs that you have, for example, co-giving or you know things like this. What are some of the things that the community, the co-working community is doing to kind of make sure they are giving back, but, you know, not giving back. I can't remember the exact term you used. Participating. Participating in their place. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a secret agenda at all. It's a very, it's a very overt um, flag in the sand kind of Good. Uh, agenda <laughs> we've always had with, with the conference. And, and um, but that being said, I mean, we're, we're dealing with co-working spaces of all shapes and sizes from a variety of countries, right? Different cultural contexts. I, I would say our space is unique, but actually, you know, there's a number of spaces in Bali that have that are, are similar to us. Let's say they've been influenced, let's say, by us, and and in terms of how they started and who they target and and whatnot. So, you know, us doing this is different than let's say uh, a Thai person who's running a co-working space in Thailand targeting tech companies, the, the whole character of the space is entirely different, right? So, uh, and, and is targeted and, and mostly populated by Thai people, right? There's, there's then not really this whole, you know, how do we integrate question. So I would say what we kind of talk about more, more generally at the conference is, is impact, social impact, and um, how are we doing it, how are we supporting our members to do it within the co-working spaces, et cetera. And there's, there's definitely a huge interest in that. And that's, that's often driven by, by the spaces themselves. I think a lot of people that get into the co-working um, space generally, especially, I mean, the last couple of years has really seen an influx of 
I would say, real estate-driven co-working spaces. So that, that has changed the character of the industry somewhat. I would say a lot of the people that got into co-working early on, and, and so many that do, are community people, right? So so I would say by almost by definition of, of their choice of, of, of business to start um, are socially minded, socially oriented. So there's, there's always a, a passionate uptake for the, the kind of topics and discussions around that stuff. What is the future of remote work, in your opinion, over the next, say, five years? Uh, it's going to blow up. So we just had this conference um, two days ago. I, I flew back from London just for the conference for five days. And it was Saturday, Sunday, it was called Running Remote. So it was the first one. Um, it won't be the last one. It was about 250, 260 people from, from all over the place, um, all running remote companies. Yeah, it was great. It was, it was just great turnout. The potential around remote work is, is huge. Um, from an employee point of view, it's like the number one requested feature in, in any workplace survey is the ability to work, from, uh, work remotely, not necessarily every day. Right. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean working in a place like Bali. It might mean I'm just going to spend a day or two at home per week. Um, but people want it. They want the flexibility. They want the feeling of freedom that it brings, et cetera. From an employer's point of view, from a business owner's point of view, there's just, it's not easy, you know? And so I, I'm not saying um, the transition from, from kind of having everybody in the office under the watchful eye of the, the diligent manager, you know, changing that from a, perception point of view, from a kind of internal framework point of view, from a, yeah, your processes and your, your workflow management and all that stuff. It's a transition for sure to make. Um, but it just, it just makes so much sense. People are living in cities that are becoming increasingly unlivable in terms of their, their commute times and pollution levels and things like that. You know, if you're wanting to be, you know, for example, tech companies, they're either in places that are so prohibitively expensive um, so except for the, the biggest funded ones of them, getting people in is, is very costly. Um, or they're in smaller markets where attracting talent out is quite difficult, right? And so the remote, the whole remote thing fixes both sides of that equation. You can attract and retain talent from all over the world. It actually helps you, generally speaking, if it's done well, create more accountability and more, I would say, performance-oriented measurements. Um, it's really easy to be a slack-ass employee if you're charming. Like if, if you're if you're funny around the water cooler, you say the right thing in meetings, you know, it can hide a lot of sins. That likability side of things, where when it's remote, it's kind of clear when stuff is not getting done, right? Because there, there typically is a much stronger um, uh, way of of tracking, right? So anyway, there's a, there's a lot of benefits um, up and down, really, that, that just get stronger. Some of the, the downsides to it, I think, are getting smaller. There's still always going to be a need for face-to-face contact. You know, I, I mean, we're, we're tactile, social creatures. It opens up the world. I mean, what I love about it in, and kind of experiencing it from, from the, from a place like Indonesia is seeing, um, you know, 99 designs, which is one of the world's biggest um, graphic design marketplaces, right? So if you want to get a logo or get a, something done, you can, you can post your job on there and, and different creatives will bid on it. And, Indonesians are the number one group globally on that platform, like as designers, as, as suppliers of, of graphic design. What that means is like there's a really interesting global democratization of wage structures, I guess is the way I would put it. 
um, where in theory, somebody sitting in a small village, as long as they have a decent internet connection, has access to jobs they wouldn't otherwise have access to. And that's super exciting. And I, I mean, I can speak to personal experiences or, you know, real life people that this is, you know, it means that, for example, they don't have to leave Bali to go to Singapore or Jakarta or, or further or Australia to get these jobs where they, they're getting paid a decent wage, right? What do you guys have coming up? I mean, I know you got different programs and things going on. You mentioned a potential documentary. I'd mean, love for you to share. I dropped a link, but I mean, you can share where people can find you. And of course, you know, anything else you guys have going on that you want to share? You know, the next next major thing on the horizon um, for us, because there's, there's really two things, um, kind of front and center is something called Launch 30. It's a program that's been kind of percolating for the last two to three years, just kind of watching what's happening within our community. So Launch 30 is basically this idea that um, you come to Bali and launch your business in 30 days. And what we kind of commit to with that, our first intake is happening this September. We have we have two planned, uh, September and November. And it is for people that are looking to become infopreneurs. So people that are are trading on their knowledge or skill set or, or perspective. So people that are, could be people that are podcasting, could be podcasting or blogging, could be people that are doing copywriting or any kind of freelancing work, starting a digital agency, um, becoming a coach of some kind, doing online courses. So all of these things, various products, different ways to productize things, but essentially what you're, you're not um, manufacturing anything. You're not selling a physical product. It's on an e-commerce business. Uh, it's not a tech product, et cetera. It's, it's you trading off your knowledge, which, you know, certainly within our community, it, it's a ton of people doing this, right? People that are coming, they have to, they already have to have a solid idea. It's not quite a, not a, I'm here to find myself course. It's a, I've got a solid idea around this. I need help with productization. And then kind of all the, the nitty gritty um, nuts and bolts that go into building a business from business plan, pricing, uh, marketing strategy, content calendar done, getting a website built, getting all the graphic design work done, uh, getting a brand bible done, getting your marketing funnels up, and so basically, soup to nuts. 30 days, you, <laughs> you're live. Yeah, you're live. So it's gonna be it's gonna be a busy 30 days. Um, but we have a team all together. I think about about 20 people involved in it, um, kind of helping pull all this together with you in 30 days. It's a mega, mega course. Uh, so we're taking 10 people, basically. 10 people per intake. Um, so we're, we're keeping it really focused. And we're keeping it focused on infopreneurship specifically so that, you know, it, it allows us to know, to have more predictability about what kind of inputs we need to bring together for people, right? Um, so that's that's a huge one for us. Um, we've actually just had our first three people pay this uh, this week. So it's it's all all happening for the September intake. So that's super exciting. And the other thing is is uh, taking Hubert online. So we've been working on something called Hubert Global or Hug. Um, my name will actually probably change, but it will always be Hug to me <laughs> uh, at this stage. It's, it's just too like endearing. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah. I'm with it you, just, man. It just kind of works. <laughs> it works. It works. Everyone needs a hug. It's a bunch of things all put together. So, I mean, ultimately, I always say like a co-working space measures success to the, by the degree to which it can help its members be successful. Um, and so the way I we try to do that for our membership is different than the next co-working space will do for their membership if we're both doing a good job because we have different communities, right, different needs and, and whatnot. Um, so Hubert Global is, is kind of like, how can we deliver more of that to more people? So there would be the community, the kind of online discussion board community side of things will be part of it. 
Uh, there's online learning. So we, we do, we did a 440 events last year. Um, we're kind of continuing that this year. Um, so we're putting a lot of those online in a, in a structured, proper way um, where the content makes sense for kind of helping people on this journey towards location independence. Um, there's a member's directory. There's kind of online um, facilitated groups. So, um, you know, success clinics, et cetera, that are, that are kind of closed groups. All of this is within the, the Hubert Global kind of ecosystem. So right now we just started it. Um, we just started taking customers. So we've, we, we've been signing up for first page customers. You know, ultimately that could end up being our biggest thing, to be honest. Hubud dot org is the website and we'll leave that in the show notes and i love how one thing you've always done is think big and execute on those even though you said earlier on the interview you felt ill-equipped and ill-trained to do a lot of these things but it seems like you've thrown yourself in and you keep making it happen so <laughs> congratulations you <laughs> there you go it's a real thing um, it is a thing it is a thing absolutely so uh just a couple more quick things we talked about the staying in local places, eating locally, and and you mentioned the talk you did at DNX. What are some of the things, if, if somebody's listening and they're just starting out and they want to uh, go check out Bali and visit you guys and, and co-work and be there for a while or maybe go some, somewhere else, what are some of the other things you would say to somebody like that in terms of being an ethical traveler and, and, and somebody who is doing it, I would say, the right way? I'm sure being in the scene, you've seen a lot of different We'll say behaviors that maybe you haven't agreed with or <laughs> that you do agree with. And I would just love to hear your thoughts on, on what you would tell that person. The degree to which travel has become easier. Um, so I, I think myself, I've been now traveling for 20 years. And the way in which it's become easier is, is, I guess, A, things have become a little bit cheaper in terms of airfare and things like that. I think the mental barrier to things has become um, much less. So for example, when I was coming out to London, but knowing I had this conference and then thinking, well, I'll just pop back to Bali for five days. I mean, it's a long way to go for five days, but, but it's it just become at least for me. So, so kind of second nature and natural and, and the world has become so small in that way, which can be great. What I find for myself and partly is, is I think a result of, of kind of uh, doing it for a while, but it, it's like, I have to be careful about coming blase or, or complacent or, disinterested um, in, in a way, right? And so I feel like if you're going to go through the effort and, and affect the carbon footprint of going to a place, um, be genuinely interested and curious and see how you can you can get into the nooks and crannies of the place rather than, than a, you know, a really sanitized, homogenized experience of it. It used to be in some ways it, it, there was a bit more of an intrepid side to it, but you know, everybody was traveling on a lonely planet, so kind of followed the same path, right? Because there was so comparatively so so much less information available to you about hotels and places or things to do or itineraries or, or whatnot. Now it's totally overwhelming, but it meant that, that people often ended up doing the same thing. Now you've got access to so much more information, which which can be too much in cases. But yeah, I would say I would say like like appreciate the fact that you're there, you're in Indonesia. It really is different and foreign. And so be, be wary of, of simply existing in these comfortable spots. Hubud is a comfortable spot, right? So there are people that come to Bali and, and we are their anchor to their experience. So they, they come, they show up the very first day they're there. That's how they end up meeting people. That really becomes the fulcrum for their, their visit. And although I love Hubud and, and everybody should come and love it too. I hope you do there's so much more to it than that, right? So don't get too 
comfortable and, and lazy with that, right? Be, be curious and, and a bit bold. I love that. Thank you for all of that. Do you still enjoy living abroad? Been doing it for so long now. Yeah, it's hard to uh, it's hard to imagine anything else. I mean, you know, I mean, in the sense of if I went to Canada right now, if I went to Toronto, it would almost feel like li- living in a different country. Um, yeah, I do. Um, and the thing is, then when I when I've come here to London, so it's our intention to be here for six months until December. Um, so you know, we've moved here, whatever that means these days, for for this period of time. People here are kind of looking at me funny, right? When I say, "Well, I'm in Bali," and I I felt like I needed a change and, and they're like, so you left Bali to come to London. <laughs> they're you know, all they're, trying to get where really, you were. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're, they're, they're really struggling with it. And, uh, <laughs> so, but I, I guess it's just, it's just kind of where you are and, and what's different and unique. And so for us, actually Europe is, I mean, we've, we've traveled here quite a bit, but we've never spent much time other than my, my one year degree. And, um, so it feels, it, it, it feels really good to have come here. You know, it feels really fresh and, and different because we've been about it for nine years. It's a long time. We've traveled a lot in that, but we've we've really kind of been in one place for for a very long time for a bunch of nomads. So you got to switch it up. We'll have to talk over the winter, and then we'll have to see if you're feeling. The yeah, same exactly, way. <laughs> exactly. I might be doing a lot of site visits back in Bali. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure you're going to answer this question, but I'm going to ask anyway. I'm going to ask for a hidden gem in Bali, and I imagine maybe this is a place that you go. You're like, I'm never telling anybody about this. <laughs> Whether it's an eating spot or a nature spot, or may- maybe you could just share a little little something with us, perhaps, or not. Well, I, I, yeah, no, no, I don't, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't have a secret spot. I'm, I, I forget the term Malcolm Gladwell used, but basically, it's for somebody that when they get really excited about something, they just they can't help but tell tell all about it. So I don't, I don't keep a lot of secrets where that's concerned. I think uh, I really enjoy um, a restaurant in a book called Yellow Flower. So if people are in Ubud, I feel like that's a place worth kind of finding. It's a little, a little harder than most to, to find your way to, but it's it's worth the, the trip. The best uh, secret place to go to in Bali is anywhere on a scooter. I totally understand why people don't rent scooters if anywhere or when they come to Bali. I, I respect the decision, um, but unfortunately, they really miss out on the unexpected. If, if you do it, um, hop on a motorbike and just go for a drive. And it does not take you long to really get onto the into a whole other side of things with Bali. Like I'm talking minutes, minutes, ten minutes from within Ubud, and, and you know where you're you're really kind of out in a, a whole different part of Bali. So I'd say do that, and I would say participate in a ceremony. So the the nice thing about Bali is is to have these kind of very um, you know, from a sound and, and sight point of view, really incredible um, ceremonies that are, are very much on public display. Um, so, you know, you have the parades going down the street, march along with them. You have things that are involved at the temple. You can go to a lot of them. And if you have a driver, um, you know, just a guy that you meet, they'll always be a, a fast, fast friend in terms of, of kind of explaining to you, you know, how to, how to do that and like take you to the market and get the right clothes. It's one of these places where, for a lot of people visiting culturally, it's so um, different and so unique and so foreign feeling in a, in a great way. But it's it's one of the places I've met where it's it's very much open to participation for a lot of it. I mean, as long as obviously you're doing it respectfully. Yes, yeah, so you you really get a, a kind of close up view of it, which is quite special. 
Amazing tips. Thank you. As the remote work, location-dependent, digital nomad, whatever you want to call it, I don't know if you prefer it. Do you prefer one of those terms? No, no. It's it's the the terminology is is troubling. Not troubling. It's uh, it, um, you're kind you're, of irrelevant, kind of, term. in a way, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, as it evolves and things change, I would love to have you back on if we could to touch in and and see where things are at in, in a little while. If that would be okay with you, because I really enjoyed our conversation today, and I I so appreciate your time and what you're doing down there. Well, now I should say up here near me, because you're in London, I'm in Norway. <laughs> Yeah, really. Thanks for your time and and thanks for continuing to try to lead this movement in the right direction. I really appreciate all the advice and everything you shared today. Thanks so much. Great. Thanks. It was was a lot of fun. It's a great call. (laughs) Take care. There you go. Thank you very much, Steve, for your time and for sharing your experience and your thoughts around the important topics we discussed today. Really appreciate it and look forward to hopefully having you back on again. Hope you enjoyed the conversation as well, my friend. And let me know your thoughts. You can get in touch anytime. Of course, my email is jason at zero to travel.com. And I do get emails from people from all over the world listening to this show, which warms my heart every time I open my inbox and get to read uh, something from somebody checking in. And if you haven't done that yet, you can feel free to shoot me a message. Just know that I I read all of those emails and I really do appreciate them. And that's why I love to give shout outs to people in this global caravan, the listening community here. And I want to give one right now to Abby, who said, Hi, Jason, I've been listening to your podcast nonstop ever since some kind soul told me about Zero to Travel. You've inspired me, encouraged me, made me laugh out loud in the car, and have put my exact feelings about traveling into words. I have always loved traveling and was fortunate enough to be raised by a family who went on many vacations, been to Central America, all over the Caribbean, Alaska, and many of the states. The best decision I've ever made was taking a semester off of college to travel Europe. It was the trip of a lifetime. I learned so much about myself and it changed my life forever. Now I'm planning to move to New Zealand for a year starting in a couple months and just says a bunch of other nice things and goes on to just say thanks for everything, Abby. Thank you, Abby, and congratulations on your upcoming trip to New Zealand. And there you go. If somebody was debating about taking time off to travel either off their job or off of college or some plan, then there's Abby's vote. Abby's saying it's the best decision you'll ever make. So (laughs) for what it's worth, there you go. I really appreciate that. I love, again, hearing from people out there. And I love that this show is able to help people travel in some way. And of course, Abby, you know, you're doing the hard work here to to plan the trip and to book the ticket and take the leap and all that good stuff. But I do appreciate that uh, you've been able to use the show as a resource. And thank you to everybody who's taken the time to check in and just taking the time to listen. I mean, even if you haven't checked in, just knowing that you're out there listening to this right now, wherever you are, wherever you're soaking this in through your ears, it really does mean a lot to me, and I so appreciate your presence here. Thank you so very much. A couple more things before I let you go. I have a quote, too. Uh, in our community location, Indy, uh, somebody posted the other day, what is your favorite travel quote? And we had a bunch of people checking in, and I'm going to share one of those in just a second, one that I never heard but one I really liked from the pile of comments there on that post. And by the way, Location Indie is our private community. If you're looking to work remotely and and do the whole location independent thing, you can check that out at locationindie.com. Also quickly want to thank Tortuga Backpacks for supporting today's show. Zero to travel.com slash Tortuga. 
will get you over to the best backpacks out there, the ones that have captured my heart. And if you use the promo code TRAVEL when you check out, just the word TRAVEL when you check out, you will get 10% off anything that you order there. I love these packs. You can find something that will fit you perfectly for any length trip. And I've said many times, I don't just use these backpacks when I'm off on some grand adventure in another country. I use them for weekend trips, for week-long trips, for three-month-long trips. I use my day pack every day, pretty much, if I go out to a cafe to work or head out into town. I love gear that I can use in my everyday life as well. And I love their stuff. ZeroToTravel.com slash Tortuga. Promo code TRAVEL when you check out. Just the word TRAVEL, you get 10% off anything you order there. And you'll also be supporting this show if you do get something. So I really do appreciate that. Thank you so much. And one last word on this remote work movement. If you're somebody who does it or you are considering getting a job that allows you to work remotely so you can travel more or going location independent and running your own business or whatever the case is, I am fascinated by this because more people than ever are going to be living in other countries for periods of time. And this is why I think this is such a disruptive movement and that's a buzzword that's used often in business, particularly startup culture, and you hear it associated with companies like Uber and Airbnb, for example. Disruptive to me is not only in the workplace, but something that disrupts daily life and culture on a global scale. And certainly the digital nomad movement, the remote work movement falls into that category. And just a final reminder as we as individuals participate in these disruptive movements that often give us as individuals more freedom and more options. I used Uber and Airbnb as examples. Now you can rent your place on Airbnb and earn income from where you live. You can drive your own car and earn income as an Uber driver. You can work remotely and earn income anywhere in the world while you travel. And all those things give you more individual freedom. But we also have to remember that there are bigger impacts on the community scale, on the global scale. And it doesn't mean that we can't do those things. I just want to bring it up so that we all, as individuals, keep those things in mind and pay attention to those things and don't look past them just because this benefits our situation. It gives us more freedom or whatever the case is. And since it's just making things easier in our lives better, doesn't mean we should forget about the negatives that come with that or not pay attention to those things because it's important. And I still struggle trying to figure out, okay, how can I do this myself? How can I be a good participant in the remote work, digital nomad, location independent community? What can I do better? How can I give back more? These are questions that linger on my mind. And I think if I keep asking myself these questions, I'm going to find some answers and hopefully do some more things that are what I believe or would hope to believe are good, positive things as a participant in in this movement. So that's all I have to say about that. Thanks for listening to today's show. And thank you for just taking the time to consider some of these different perspectives and ideas. Now I'm going to leave you with this quote, as I mentioned in our community location indie, somebody asked, what is your favorite travel quote? And this one was courtesy of Shelly who's a member of our community. So shout out to Shelly if she's listening right now. And this is a quote she put in from Miriam Adenay. And Miriam said, you will never be completely at home again. 
because part of your heart will always be elsewhere. That is the price you pay for the richness of loving and knowing people in more than one place. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Cheers. This podcast has been brought to you by ZeroToTravel.com. Ideas and advice to make your travel dreams a reality.